This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. You could see the way the Chinese were reacting to that they were in denial mode about it, in denial mm-hmm. mode about it. And then when the proof came through, they then switched to their narrative about, oh, we're just doing vocational training for these people. And we're just, it's just a poverty alleviation program. I'm like, yeah, I've seen how you do poverty alleviation in Tibet. It's now voluntary. They're being arbitrarily detained. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems. Please note, this episode contains subject matter relating to human atrocities, including but not limited to comments on genocide, torture, and forced sterilization. Listener discretion is advised. I am so pleased to welcome Ambassador Kelly Curry to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast today. Ambassador Curry formerly served as the U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues and the U.S. Representative at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. Prior to this, she led the Department of State's Office of Global Criminal Justice and served under Ambassador Nikki Haley as the United States Representative to the United Nations Economic and Social Council and Alternative Representative to the U.N. General Assembly. Throughout her career in foreign policy, Ambassador Curry has specialized in human rights, political reform, development, and humanitarian issues, with a particular focus on the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you so much for joining us today from the Great White North in Halifax. It's my pleasure to be here, Kathleen, (laughs) and it's been great to be up here in Halifax and soaking up all the energy of this conference these past couple days. Absolutely. So, Ambassador Curry, you've had an extraordinary career full of dynamic roles and an incredibly important portfolios. What brought you into this world of human rights, law, and international affairs? Well, I sort of fell into it by accident. It wasn't really an intentional choice. (laughs) I came up to Washington. I was interested in politics with my freshly minted political science degree from the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about. I had focused mostly on domestic politics, hadn't really looked at international issues. When I was in college, I was very moved and it was during a time where there were a lot of things going on that were about human rights in Tiananmen Mm -hmm. Square and the ADA generation movement in Burma, the fall of the Berlin Wall and people's demand for freedom and human rights. But I didn't really realize that that was like a career choice (laughs) that you could do to like work with people who were doing those things until I got to Washington and I was interning in the office of Congressman John Porter, who passed away recently and was my first mentor here. And he was the co-founder of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. And I was interning in his office and the Human Rights Caucus staff directors kind of took me under their wing. And I immediately kind of fell in love with this work and the people that they worked with and the challenges of working on human rights Mm -hmm. and decided when I, I went back to school, finished, I actually was still in school, finished, got my degree, came back to Washington Mm -hmm. wanting to work in this field. 
I had always wanted to go to law school, I thought, you know, I need to be a lawyer for some reason. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> and so I went to law school at night while I was working on the Hill for Congressman Porter. And I ended up running the Human Rights Caucus. Wow. And yes, <laughs> I did that for four years. And wow. it was the most amazing job. I got to meet the bravest, most incredible people. I remember this was in the mid 90s you know, learning about the Taliban at that time when people weren't paying any attention unless you were in Afghanistan focus. And we covered the world. So I learned about, you know, contacts all over the world and what people were doing to fight for freedom and Mm -hmm. fight for human rights and developed this just passion for wanting to help them. And so I was doing it on the Hill through legislation, but I wanted to do more and be more intimately involved with it. And that led me to work with the International Republican Institute, where I was able to go and work directly on the ground with civil society, with Democrats at risk, with uh, activists who were fighting for democracy and human rights in their countries. And I was in Southeast Asia doing this. I was working in Indonesia, in Timor-Leste. I was right. there during, you know, for the referendum and the aftermath of that, the UN handover period, setting up our programs, running them, and working on Burma, on the Thai-Burma border, working with these incredible people. And it was actually in that context where I first started noticing how women's political participation, even in these movements for freedom and democracy, was still, like, you had these, these movements for human rights but they were largely dominated by men. The political space was largely taken up by men, and women often struggled to have their voices and their issues brought to the fore and to participate on an equal basis. Even in movements that were led by women, this was true. I noticed this with Burma, for instance, where Aung San Suu Kyi Mm -hmm. was the iconic leader of the Burmese democracy movement. But when you got down to the grassroots level, all of the people that were working on things seemed to be men and they seemed to be taking up all the political space. I was meeting these women who were incredible. They were running schools in refugee camps. They were organizing migrant workers in Thailand, Mm -hmm. Burmese migrant workers who were being abused by their employers. They were doing all these incredible political things, but they weren't part of the the formal political opposition. But they were getting more organized, especially the ethnic women, which is kind of a, you know, when you think about it, it seems to be they're the most marginalized. You know, they're ethnic minorities. They fled conflict. Yeah. They are extremely vulnerable. But they were so organized about everything they did. The men were not, I will tell you. (laughs) And But the women just like, I just felt like we needed to do more to support them. So I started a woman in politics kind of aspect to our Burma program that had not existed before. These like grassroots women's organizations who had been focused on service delivery and then working with their communities to be like, look, you need to be participating in these conversations about constitution. When you have a women's auxiliary to a political party, you need to not be serving tea and making snacks. You need to be in the room talking about the political things. And so it was great. I just basically stood there and provided funding and a place for them to meet. And then they took off. But they were already working on things like women, peace and security. They were part of the global coalition that actually led to the push for the women, peace and security initiative at the Security Council. They were already doing all these things. I just helped get them some additional funding, helped integrate them more into some of the political spaces and fought 
with my male counterparts or, you know, with our grantees and so to like fight for space mm-hmm. for them to help them. When you think about these issues moving forward and where the agenda needs to go, what do you think needs to be the priorities? I think the Women, Peace and Security agenda is really important. A lot of times you have the Women, Peace and Security folks, they talk to civil society and they talk among themselves, but they're not talking to the security forces right. and they're not really pushing on the militaries. We have a huge opportunity with women, peace, and security. And I think when I think about we're in a global competition with authoritarian regimes, they are terrible in women, peace, and security. They don't even show up at the playing field. But our partners in the global south, their security forces are just completely around the bend, corrupt dictatorships. And the ones that are struggling where we really actually need to be having points of influence and trying to find ways to work with them. Women, Peace, and Security is a great entry point for working with security partners. We don't take enough advantage of it, I think. Yeah. And so I really, one of the things that I've been doing, like I'm working with private security contractors on Women, Peace, and Security, for instance, and making sure that they are thinking from the contract stage to implementation about Mm -hmm. where does Women, Peace, and Security fit into their work? Because, you know, we privatize huge chunks of what we do in the field. But one of the funny things that I see is that DOD, the combatant commands, love Women, Peace, and Security because they recognize this They see it as this entry point and they see that we have the field to ourselves. We have so much to offer. It's also helpful for us in terms of the health of our own security services, of our own military. They see the benefits of a diverse force that reflects our society and that takes advantage of all the strengths and skills that having a whole of society approach to security brings. And they know that it makes our military stronger to have women participate in it. And so they're eager to share that gospel with their security partners. But at the leadership level at DOD, you often find that it's not it's an add-on. Yeah, they often. see it's, it as a box-ticking yeah. exercise. They see it as something they have to do, that we've got this Women, Peace, and Security Act. I guess we have to do an implementation plan. Right, it seemed like, like as an action officer yeah. ta- you know, yeah. task list rather yes. than like exactly. a strategic approach to right. be integrated into the right. planning system. And systems. rather than seeing it as our like secret weapon and seeing it as a real opportunity for engagement where we literally have the field to ourselves and our adversaries don't even show up. Yeah, like they just don't even show that. Yeah. They're hostile to it. In right. fact, they think it's stupid and right. terrible. And we're like, okay, keep thinking that. Right. Keep we, we overlooking see- this incredible opportunity right. and leave it to us to where we just can keep yeah. working like, with these security forces. Keep focusing Russia on the hyper-masculine. Yeah, weird, like we same with Like China. cartoonishly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Please, please keep focused <clears throat> that way. And mm-hmm. I think that it's stealth in a way, despite mm-hmm. all the talk about it. But especially on the security side, and when you talk to the women who are here for the Peace with Women Mm -hmm. engagement at at Halifax, you get that strong sense that they're the secret weapon in our military. It's not our fancy tech. It's our soft skills. It's all of these things that people overlook. Mm -hmm. And so I think that trying to get that message across to some of my less enlightened colleagues in the United (laughs) States, as well as, you know, and then starting to operationalize it more. I think that we've also got to stop seeing women as victims and uh, instead see them as survivors, which a survivor is a strong person. A survivor is a tough person. This is a totally different frame. 100%. Once you start thinking about the problems that we look at through those lenses, you can't go back to looking at them through the old lenses. Right. And it opens up all kinds of new possibilities as well. You are 
saying so many things that resonate so deeply with me in terms of where my analysis has also yeah. led. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I leave with facts. It's yeah. like the facts don't care about your feelings, right? And I think we also... Exactly, right? And, but here we are. Like, yeah, and, and, it's, and, it's, and this often gets like put as some kind of emotional feel-good thing. I'm like, oh, this is just realism. I mean, right. it actually is the way the world works. And right. people like to think that the world is some, I mean, yes, the world can be brutish and awful, but the idea that you're going to solve the problems created by men with guns, <laughs> by applying more men with guns to the yeah. problem is just insane. Yeah. Like, have we not learned anything? <laughs> I'm really constantly amazed by it. And so I saw it at the UN where the same group of white male negotiators was sent to do peace negotiations that and women were kept out of the rooms and that mattered and then oh oh yes we have to do some women peace and security activity You're like no women <laughs> peace and security just, is not an right. activity it's not fairy dust yeah, exactly it's, <laughs> it's got to be like integrated from the beginning and you've got to look at women as integral parts of solving the problem mm-hmm. not as we got to have a box checking it right we right. saw this with Afghanistan right I mean, I okay. watched it happen every day when I was in the administration, and it drove me crazy. Yeah. I would just uh, constantly fighting, like, where are the women? We need to listen to the women. They are telling us things. You need to listen to them. Why aren't you listening to them? They have knowledge. They have information. They are at the front lines of this. They are on the coal face, please. And it deeply frustrated me. Sure. Deeply frustrated me, and it continues to frustrate me that during the withdrawal, I would look and see who the decision makers were at the end of the day on Afghanistan. And it was all men. And I'm like, well, that explains a lot about what happened. I'm sorry, but it does. So another international crisis that I Mm -hmm. at least don't feel gets nearly enough attention. The Uyghur genocide. Yeah. Right now. I guess just to start us off, when you started working on that issue, where was the U.S. government? What was going on at the time? When I first started working on Uyghur issues, it wasn't really the U.S. government policy was going to put the East Turkestan independence movement on the terror list and then go yeah. live to regret it. So because I worked with the Tibetans, I knew, and you know, the way that I came into China, again, is through these kind of strange vectors. It's, you know, noticing that they were a problem and all the other problems that they were nested within every other problem I was dealing with in Southeast Asia, for instance, and also, you know, working with the Tibetans, but also working on China human rights directly, too. With East Turkestan, with the Uyghurs, they were kind of adjacent to my work on Tibet, and so I knew about them before, I think, most people. And then when I was working for the International Committee of the Red Cross and was interviewing them down at Gitmo and trying to understand what had led them to show up in Afghanistan in the first place, which then pointed me toward what was happening on the ground under Chinese rule in Xinjiang. And Mm -hmm. so it was something that I was tracking lightly as a human rights person. But in 2016, a young woman approached me to tell me that her brother had disappeared after he had returned back to China after he had done a program at the State Department, a visitor's program. And she didn't understand it because her family, she's like, we're model leaders. My father works for the government. I'm here studying in the United States. My brother was, you know, just running a Uyghur language website to try to promote understanding between Uyghur people and Han Chinese. I don't understand why he's disappeared and we think he's gone into this detention. He's been arrested. We don't know why. And they were so confused by it because they literally tried to follow the rules that the Chinese Communist Party had set up. And then we just kept hearing, I was not in government at the time, and we just kept hearing more and more of these stories. And 
people seeking me out and then I'm referring them to the human rights office of the State Department. I'm like, you need to go tell them, you need to go tell them. And Rabia Kadir, who is a longtime friend of mine and a very prominent Uyghur woman, you know, is telling me that every Uyghur is losing people and they're yeah. like just disappearing. So the State Department started tracking it. I went into government in 2017 at a time where it was already becoming clear that something was going on. Right. We did not really understand the scope and scale of it right. for a couple of years, I will say, to see like how many people it was. But it really just came from Americans, Australians, Germans, Brits of Uyghur descent going to their government and being like, I have not been able to reach these members of my family for six months like and I was in contact with them every day now their whatsapp is shut down their neighbors don't know what happened to them they won't talk about it and so then all the people who were doing human rights reporting on it started really starting to produce and starting to understand there was some really groundbreaking research done by some researchers who were looking at what was happening and started to really sketch out the scope of it and by the end of 2017 we started to understand that there was something qualitatively different. Did you have a moment, or what was that moment where you realized that, oh my God, the scale of this? When we were sitting in a meeting with some of our like-minded countries, and the Australians (laughs) mentioned that they had an inordinately large number when they mentioned that they were having the same problem, where I didn't realize that they had such a large Uyghur Australian community. First of all, that was an eye-opener for me. And then they said that every single that they just had tens of thousands of people calling the Fornoff, asking if they can help them locate their relatives. And they were doing like this normal thing that the Australian governments do, yeah. where they go to the Chinese government and say, our citizen is looking for this family member. And they were getting back from the Chinese government responses that that person does not wish to speak to their relative in your country, and you need to tell them not to contact them anymore. And the Australians were like, what is this noise? Yeah. And we were sharing this information with our allies. When the Australians told us that, I was just like, This is beyond. I skipped over something, which is that the person who was put in charge of Xinjiang when this started happening was previously in charge of Tibet. So I knew his work. (laughs) I knew his stylings. I knew what he had done in Tibet very intimately and saw that they were really rolling out the same kinds of policies. You could see the policy dictates coming out and what was going on. And then the other thing, I mean, there was also a a massive step up in harassment of Uyghurs outside of China. The forcing Uyghur students in, there was a, a big incident where hundreds of Uyghur students who were in Egypt were forced to go back to China. And the Egyptian government like canceled all their visas and sent them all back, and they disappeared. I mean, they just disappeared into the internment system. And like I said, these researchers started to kind of try to figure out what was going on, like looking at Chinese language websites, doing what the amazing China research community does, of yeah. looking at source documents to understand. And started seeing these patterns of procurement on websites where the Kashgar government has put out a tender offer to hire 10,000 new police and corrections officers, like, you know, these extraordinary numbers and just things like that. And then they started looking at satellite imagery and slowly but surely also some of our great media outlets like Radio Free Asia and Voice of America, mm-hmm. who have Uyghur services, were able to start to get the pieces and get more information. And then there were document leaks. Those mm-hmm. were critical the leaks of documents that really was again it's like the aperture just kept opening 
And every time we would get more information, it would add another piece to where we would start to see the shape and the scope of the whole thing. But I think that we were looking at it and, and because we were looking at the problem from one perspective, we didn't see the whole infrastructure right. of it until much later that they had put in place. And so it actually took a while to kind of piece it all together. But I would say that by mid-2018 or early 2018, actually, actually by the end of 2017, we had a fairly good picture. But throughout 2018, it started to come into focus a lot more. And that's when we were starting to raise the issue in the UN, too. I was still in New York. And I was going to Geneva because we were down an ambassador or two in Geneva. So I was also doing a lot of work in Geneva to try to raise the issue. You could see the way the Chinese were reacting to that they were in denial mode about it, in denial Mm -hmm. mode about it. And then when the proof came through, they then switched to their narrative about, oh, we're just doing vocational training for these people. And we're just, it's just a poverty alleviation program. I'm like, yeah, I've seen how you do poverty alleviation in Tibet. It's not voluntary. They're being arbitrarily detained. And so it's been a long process. It was a slow build in a way. But by the time we got to the genocide determination in January 2021, it had been you know four years of trying to understand the scope and scale. And mm-hmm. I would say that moment with the Australians was one. And then another one was when there was a video of a train station in Xinjiang where they were offloading detainees. There's this train that just like went off into the horizon and it showed the platform. They were still at the front of the train offloading people and there were thousands of people. They were blindfolded, they were shackled, they were wearing color-coded uniforms, there were police and dogs. Like you could see all of this, you know, it's out in the public domain. And it was terrifying and it was like one day of moving people and then they're putting them on buses and sending them off to detention facilities. I mean, there were all these things. It was a slow build, but kind of inexorable. And then I would say we had a lot of arguments inside the administration about what to do and what to call it. Because when I was in the Office of Global Criminal Justice, I said, we need to start an atrocity file because Mm -hmm. it wasn't being brought up in an atrocity framework either. It was a human rights problem. It was, you know, right. it was a China authoritarianism problem. And it had been in the Bureau of Human Rights up to then, but it hadn't really been put in the atrocity framework. Right. And with policy tools, you know, it matters what tools we use, how we approach this. Right. And so when I was in that office in 2019, I said, we need to open a file. Yeah. At which started the atrocity determination process in 2019. It was like the first thing I did when I showed up in the office. I'm like, you have a file? And so I'm like, oh, we're tracking it lightly. I'm like, nope, we're opening a file. So that started the process of building the case. But what I think the tipping point for me, because I was like, there are crimes against humanity here. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at that predicate mm-hmm. elements, blah, blah, blah. It's systematic, it's widespread, the nature of the abuses, the arbitrary detention, the torture, all of these things, crimes against humanity, sure. This is a slam dunk for crimes against humanity being committed here. I couldn't get to genocide mentally until we started getting the reports about the forced sterilization. And so, again, this is where (laughs) the women come in. Mostly it was men being detained, right? Women were not being detained. They were being left at home. The women who were detained, it was more specific, like they had a specific connection, but men were just being rounded up and put into camps. It was just, you know, millions. But it was definitely mostly men. But what we were seeing with women and with families was different. 
there was a forcible sterilization in the camps for the women who were detained. And, you know, we had reports, we were getting survivor testimony of women who had managed to get out, women who had been working as teachers in the camps who were able to get out because they were Kazakh citizens or whatever, and to talk about and give firsthand testimony about what was going on. And so we were starting to get more and more women. And I think that, again, this is where China's blind spot toward women initially worked in our favor because they let women leave the country. And I think they didn't realize how powerful it would be to have these women's voices talking about what they had seen and what had happened to them. And so if you look at the survivor testimonies have largely come from women and they are incredibly brave and powerful women who have come forward with these testimonies and talked about the situation. But it was the documentation of the forced sterilization, and again, using procurement documents, using mm-hmm. policy documents that talked about what they were doing, yeah. and that they were basically applying the old one-child approach, which China had perfected over decades, and which I think we all knew very well from its application to the Han Chinese population. At the same time, they were getting rid of it in the Han Chinese population, they were turning around and applying that whole course of apparatus to the Uyghur population in a way that had, was completely different from what had happened before, where they had been allowed as minorities to have more children. So there was the forced sterilization, which is a predicate act for genocide, and then the family separation. They were taking children out of homes and forcing them into boarding schools, children as young as two, taking them from their families. And this was true even if only one member of the family was in detention. They would still take the child and put them in a boarding school. And it wasn't because there wasn't someone at home to take care of the child. It was literally to separate them from their family and their yeah. and cut the cultural cord. Yeah. And they talked about this in their policy documents oh that were God. leaked about cutting the cultural transmission cord. And I had seen this language in Tibet too. Yeah. I would say that the evidence of widespread mass forced sterilization and the use of that coercive apparatus for no population control reason. I mean, right. the leaders yeah. are like a tiny minority. There are 1.4 yeah. billion people in China. They recognize they had a demographic time bomb in China. So they've been trying to incentivize urban Han Chinese to have more children, and they can't get them to do it. They're literally right. paying Han Chinese to have children. At the same time, they're forcibly sterilizing Uyghur women. Yeah. And so there's no legitimate policy reason for yeah. doing this other than to try to reduce and eliminate and, and shrink the size of the population of this group. That is a predicate act for genocide. It's both the intent and then the action. Mm-hmm. And so that was what convinced me. That's what allowed me because I was very, very conservative. People wanted to go for genocide determination. And, you know, the Uyghurs were also calling it a genocide. I think the word genocide gets thrown around way too liberally. I'm not someone who uses it lightly. But I also get really frustrated with our State Department because they tend to only declare things as a genocide after the mass killing has it's already completed. Yeah. Instead of understanding that the need for atrocity frameworks is actually to, we have a prevention obligation too under the yeah. Genocide Convention. And calling something by its name when it's happening yeah. is far more important than doing it after the fact. But... I also am very, you know, I'm a lawyer. I want to make sure I've got my facts before I use these powerful words. And so that was when I knew was when we got the information about the family planning. So when you asked me about how this relates to women's issues, it's that. Yeah. It's that. And I think that that was the turning point. It also allowed me, as the ambassador for global women's issues, I wasn't in charge of atrocity determinations anymore. But it allowed me to go to the secretary and say, it's time. And what was the reception? 
He wanted to start using stronger language, but was being held back by the lawyers at the State Department. There's a process, we have to go through it. We have to have the evidence and the determination and State Department's very process-oriented. But also, there were concerns while the phase one trade negotiations were going on, saying that China was in, was committing a genocide probably would not have made those go any easier. The State Department is not the only actor in foreign policy, the Treasury Department. You know, we were pushing them to do different things with global Magnitsky sanctions and other things. But it was a tough push with Treasury because after the phase one trade deal was done and after COVID hit, it did open up some policy space. I'm not going to lie for us yeah. to be more aggressive on these things. And we took full advantage of it, Yeah, I would say. And that's the art of policymaking yeah. is that you want to be able to do things and you know it's the right thing to do and you know it needs to be done, but the policy space just isn't there. And right. being ready so that mm-hmm. when that policy space opens up and you can rush into it, that, and that's kind of basically what happened, I would say, in 2020. To what extent do you feel like your being a woman affected this decision and the genocide determination and how that played out? If not, why not? Well, I think I'm underestimated a lot. Yeah, yeah I will say that. <laughs> I think I'm underestimated because I'm a woman. And also because I'm in the Office of Global Women's Issues. Like, people are like, what are you doing, like, in yeah. the women's office? You're having tea, tea parties or something? Like, and even at the State Department. Right. It's like, you can't see her rolling her eyes. <laughs> we both are. And so I think that people are like, why are you in this meeting about, you know, security issues and about Syria? I'm like, I'm sorry. Are there 80,000 women and children in our whole camp? Yeah, I'm here because yeah. of that. And I don't even need that reason. Right. But are you joking? Right. Like, right. What is wrong with you? Why, why should, should I have to explain yeah. myself as right. why when I show up at a meeting on a security issue? That's insane. That happened all the time. And why my office needed to be involved in working on the Indo-Pacific strategy. I'm like, you know, are there women in the Indo-Pacific? And going back to what I was saying before, do we have security partners who are interested in women, peace, and security? Yes, we do. Vietnam wants us to co-host a women, peace, and security conference with them. And I can't get $100,000 out of the State Department to support it, to co-host with them. It's like, just take it out of my rep funds. We'll do this. I think because I'm underestimated and I kind of come in under the radar, but it doesn't happen twice. I will tell you that people don't underestimate me twice. (laughs) Usually (laughs) they figure it out pretty quick, but I think that that's a lot to do with it. Also, as a woman, you have to learn how to navigate these things and be a skillful you know, one of my friends calls says I was I'm a knife fighter. I'm like, I really don't like that. But just because I know how to work the system, it doesn't make me a knife fighter. I think right. it just makes me a good policymaker that I right. understand what everybody's incentive structures are in this system. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I can't just make things happen. Like I'm right. not able to do that. I've always had to navigate around these obstacles. And mm-hmm. so I guess it just makes me better at it. I've had more practice. I can't just, you know, walk into a meeting and <laughs> get up automatic yeah, and everybody just automatically wants to do what I say no that never never happens so no. I guess that I would say that's it but I don't like to call them soft skills because that implies that they're not important and I don't know why but I think those soft skills are what makes a lot of us successful and also I don't care who gets credit that's the other thing it's not important to me. Right. it's never really been important to me like the mm-hmm. outcome is what's important and I think you find with your male colleagues that is not usually the case that they are more interested in not all of them 
I shouldn't do that, but especially in places. Like, well, it's the culture that prioritizes that. I feel like some of yeah. our male colleagues get trapped in it too. Yes, right? I think I that's guess. right. Although some of them also seem to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> and, and I think also it creates a toxic culture that women who think that they have to emulate that behavior. And so yeah. it's really important to me when I'm mentoring young women and others to be like, that's not the way you have to be. You don't have to be an obnoxious, self-promoting person to be successful. Like that's right. really not necessary. You do need to learn how to speak up for yourself and assert yourself and advocate for yourself, but you don't have to be that guy. Yeah. Don't be that guy. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Craig, for speaking with us today, for your fascinating insights into the sort of global picture and human rights, but also the deeply troubling Uyghur genocide. Thank you for sharing that, that experience. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.